Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. I'm the best ever. I'm the most brutal and vicious and most ruthless champion there's ever been. There's no one can stop me. Lynx is a conqueror. No, I'm Alexander. He's no Alexander. I'm the best ever. My style is impetuous. My defense is impregnable. And I'm just ferocious. I want your heart. I want to eat his children. Praise be to Allah. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, President Trump was officially impeached yesterday. As the official political pundit of the Very Bad Wizards <laughs> podcast, how do you think this will affect his reelection chances? I, you know what my reaction to Trump getting impeached was? I deleted the Twitter app on my phone. <laughs> That's... Like, I actually did. Like, I can't handle it. I can't, I can't handle it. But I will have you know, I, I never to, toot my horn because why? But I was quoted about the Trump campaign and the Christian Science Monitor the other day. And I thought it would be, you might get a kick out of it specifically to know how little I care about politics. But yet I'm being quoted <laughs> about the Trump campaign. <laughs> I don't even know what I'm talking about. Little did the reporter know. <laughs> I'm like, Wait, he's Donald Trump is president? Is that what, you're, is that what you're telling me? So today we're going to do a couple of things. In the first segment, we're going to talk about Mr. Robot. We are now just a few days before the finale, which is going to be a two-part finale this coming Sunday. And then, of course, this episode will come out the following Tuesday. So any predictions that we make you will either know that we are totally <laughs> yeah, like wrong the worst and time. full of shit or somehow right or who knows. I, I feel like this is brave of us, you know? Yeah. It's, it's... <laughs> uh, this is, takes a lot of courage, what we're about to do. Um, and then in the second segment, we are going to talk about two articles that you recommended on the topic of trash talking, the very interesting topic of trash trash talking so we're gonna something that i have to put up with for seven years just on this podcast alone so i thought you might i don't know you seem to give as good as you get <laughs> maybe but yeah i think i my my prediction is we might get into our first real fight in a while uh, and i'll tell you what in that fight i'm gonna bitch slap your ass back to yesterday <laughs> i'm gonna eat your children praise allah <laughs> So skip ahead if you're not caught up at least through episode 11 um, of the fourth season or if you just don't give a shit. But if you do, let's 
talk. So the last time we talked, I think, was after episode seven, where it was revealed that that his father had molested him when he was a child. A lot has happened since then. Um, yeah. Uh, I'm because I'm going to be so negative about the two articles <laughs> that are in the second segment. I want to be a little more positive about Mr. Robot than maybe I originally intended. Um, I I still say that my general impression of the season is that it's a very good season. I thought the ninth episode was one of the best Mr. Robot episodes ever. This was when... Which one was the ninth again? That's the one where they break the dead deus group. Yeah. They bring them down and Philip Price shit talks White Rose uh, knowing that he's going to die. And I it was yeah. just... That was really good. Um, the filmmaking has been great all season. Um, it's... It, the, 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 my, my concerns have come with the last two episodes. In the next episode, it was just about Dom and Darlene. And it was that one I thought was pretty brutal to watch because you, I, you, they, they've just never given us a much of a reason to care about Dom and Darlene and his relationship. And so like we care about them. Like I care about Darlene. I care to some extent about Dom. Um, That's really it. Dom, I agree that we care to some extent about her, but to the extent that we did, I wanted her to be able to free her family from the clutches of the Dark Army, and she did that. And so that's it. Like, I don't need closure for Dom anymore, um, and certainly not their relationship. And yet, right. at a time where the epi- the countdown is, there's like a few episodes left of the whole series, to devote a whole episode to that was was rough. It was. It struck me as a little bit of fan service in the sense that, like a lot of fans, I know that this is maybe I'm on the subreddit a bit too much. A lot of people really wanted to see this be a love story, Domlin, which is fine. Yeah, the Domlin, Dom- which is fine, but make it a love story then. Don't make it a you know like a. Um, and then the last episode, episode eleven, um, which we really haven't talked about. Um, no. It was one of these episodes where I thought I, I've only seen it once and maybe I'll go see it again. Me too. But there's been a few episodes of Black Mirror that have been like this too recently. It makes me wonder not just like did I like that episode, but was this show ever as good as I thought it was? You know, like that <laughs> well, was hey, if you're gonna be this positive for Mr. Robot, please. <laughs> please. <laughs> we should just not record about the, the, you know, the I, um, I wanna take like I wanna just say that that was my reaction <laughs> afterwards. Which, yeah. like not just I didn't really like that episode, but like was I fooled in some way into thinking this was a good show? I do I I think the answer to that is no. Uh, and maybe even that the episode is better than I thought, but to the extent that I've ever been just not on board. Okay. The, let me give some context to my reaction and in part context to why we're talking about it in the opening segment, at least from my perspective. So a lot of the Mr. Robot allure uh, to me has been the complexity of the plot and the hint of something deeper going on in you know we've talked almost ad nauseum about the potential sci-fi elements so uh white rose was 
presumably building a machine that uh, either could time travel or could take people to parallel universes. Dangle, this is a hope for Angela before killing her, um, seems to believe it herself. And this episode finally seemed to tackle that. Now, over the course of the four seasons, I think I've come to agree with many uh, of the uh, people who who have commented on Mr. Robot, which is if you're going to bring in explicit sci-fi at this point, this late in, in the series, then it doesn't feel right. It's always seemed as if the more plausible uh, account of what's going on is that White Rose just believes in the sci-fi premise. Like, but, but it doesn't really matter for the show. Or that she's using the sci-fi. Or that premise, she's using, right. Um, yeah. To, for some other aim. Yeah. Which yeah. it seemed like she and, was doing with Angela. Right. Um, and we, you know, we didn't know if she was just trying to deceive Angela and she did the same thing uh, with Elliot. Um, so we get this episode where Elliot has this final task of taking on, you know, bi- like the big bad Elliot versus White Rose. And uh, we he goes to the power plant where presumably she's been building this machine and uh, they have like a dialogue with each other that I think is at the heart of what bothers <laughs> bothers me, which is not me that too. right. This the dialogue was, I think, as you said, the 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 only things we said to each other is we agreed that that was too on the nose. Like White Rose, sort of lays it all out there about her motivations and and it's preachy in a way that it's been sometimes, but hadn't been lately. And then you get this. All of a sudden, we think that the power plant is about to explode. The nuclear uh, reactor where the machine is being built is about to explode. Screen goes to red, and we get uh, uh, apparently an alternate version of Elliot and his life. Yeah. And in this in this alternate life, Elliot is uh, appears to be very happy. He has a job as the CEO of Allsafe, the company that he was working for at the very beginning. He dresses well. He has a nice, sturdy, like rich person's apartment. Although he I even think has, it might be the same apartment, just done up. It might be just done up. Yeah. Uh, he has a, this is a tell that you'll like this. He has an iMac instead of his regular PC, like mm-hmm. in the corner. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And uh, he is, we find out, engaged to to be married to Angela, who is also very happy. And in this world, he's about to close a deal with F Corp rather than E Corp. So this is the F Corp parallel world. Yes. um, Where Tyrell is actually the CEO of F Corp. And he's about to close a big deal with Elliot on Allsafe. And he's kind of grubby, like... He, yeah, he's he, like the he's a yeah. schlub. He's dressed in like the, he he always wanted to wear hoodies and not care how people thought about him. And, you know, that's that's that conversation they had in another great episode this season, the ones where they get lost in the woods. And it seems like in this reality, that's what Tyrell is. He He's what he kind of idealistically imagines Elliot to be in right. the reality that 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 we saw also angela says to him you're such an only child at one point it's revealed a that darlene doesn't seem to exist in this reality and also that both their parents are still alive and yeah and importantly i guess that that 
Elliot's father, Edward Edward Alderson, the Christian Slater character, is um, is actually a really good father, a great guy. It's like you know, corny, overboard corny on purpose, um, where they everybody just gets along, and you know, even the lighting is bright, and and their outfits are clean, and and right. So let let me just see if you think that this is uh, one way of thinking about. It. So either, <laughs> sorry, shut up, Charlie. <laughs> Charlie doesn't have a little puppy pussy bark. That is Dave's dog for for fans. That's the first time we've heard uh, Pizarro's dog on the podcast. As I see it, there are a few possibilities. One, there really is a like the sci-fi thing was real. White Rose has a machine. The machine actually. Send off. Oh, White Rose commits suicide. Did we say that? <laughs> no. Yeah. Before you lay out the possibilities, I just want to like underscore one thing that you said. That scene between Elliot and White Rose, where there it's kind of a showdown, and yeah. I thought it was awful. Like just awful. Like the, yeah. how on the nose it is. I was just listening to a podcast with Sam Esmail. Um, where they, he was with these two other guys listing their top 10 shows of the decade. And Sam Esmail is a big David Lynch fan. And for him, far and away, the best TV uh, series of the decade was just the third season of Twin Peaks, um, Twin Peaks The Return. He thought it was like the best, th- maybe the best thing that's happened like, huh. to the world and like they really should years. watch it <laughs> yeah and he was really outraged that it wasn't getting even as celebrated as it was still not getting the attention it deserved but like what david lynch doesn't do and what part of what makes him so great is he doesn't just have these scenes where the two main characters are pedantically articulating every single philosophical emotional and like moral theme of the show out loud like that and that's what was so disappointing. It was like, what what happened to show don't tell? Like we knew yeah, all that I was stuff. About to say, yeah, we we knew that Elliot has has made this kind of emotional progress, and we knew that White Rose had this kind of nihilistic streak. That Elliot has a part. Like they don't need to say it over. Like, and and that is where I think the show goes wrong maybe too often and it's really in the writing it's certainly not in the filmmaking no, it's, the it's not in the music it's not it's just it's that aspect of it that i've found really disappointing and i've found disappointing during the episodes that i haven't liked i agree it it takes me completely out of it and and um it's something that i don't think that that he esmail has to do or should do uh, you know i'm i'm obviously you know armchair quarterbacking this but but I know that Sam Esmail is capable of making his actors show and not tell. And the scenes in which they're like it in that scene where they were talking to each other, it, it, like and the subtitle might, might as well have read like B.D. Wong acting like I'm right. acting, I'm acting and I'm acting <laughs> like it, it's and yeah. B.D. Wong is amazing. I love him. Um, and, and I think Rami Malek is amazing too, but, but they are, their subtlety has been what has, has, I think made, made them great. And I just get the, the corny chills when it's that, when it's that in your face. And you don't have to be like, I I don't think that we're being 
too sophisticated or hipster. Mm-hmm. Uh, my daughter was like, this is lame while it was happening, you know? Yeah. Just yeah. it's a paradigmatic example of something that didn't need to be said because we're feeling it. We're feeling it already. Let us feel yeah. it. Let us come to these conclusions. Don't tell us uh, exactly where every character is at. Um, even even the the um, text game that he's playing on the Apple computer was yeah. too on the nose for me. Where it's I like, agree. leave your friend, yes or no? It's like. Ah, oh, like I, you know, this is the dramatic point in which I'm going to have Elliot make a decision, and the way that I'm going to do it is to literally have him type out a decision that <laughs> that I've explicitly asked of the character. All right, let's get to the possibilities. So one of the things that I will say that I like about that episode, and I really, you know, now that I've said what I the the kind of nadir of it. I kind of even though I agree in theory that you shouldn't introduce any sci-fi element this late into the series, I kind of like that he is just swinging for the fences and doing this right now in a way that we have no fucking idea what's going on. You yes. know, like that that there is something kind of impressive and ambitious about that that all of a sudden like you really didn't know when the the nuclear plant is melting down you didn't know what was going to happen and i certainly didn't predict that what was going to happen would be that all of a sudden it's this elliot uh, as the ceo of allsafe trying to land uh, a contract just like in the first season with uh, E-Core, except it's now called F-Core. Like, that's j- and, and, and Elliot yeah. is, as you described very well, who he is right now. That was great. And, and the way it was kind of, the episode was almost over, so you didn't think there was enough time to do something like that. You know? Yeah. And, and it was, so I 100% agree with you. I think th- this is why I'm optimistic about the way that the show resolves, uh, the, the potential for the show to resolve, because I think that... Um, in that last bit where we're in this, who knows, parallel world, um, it's it's so jarring to see the characters acting this way um, to begin with. So I think that it's yeah. it's a good way to unsettle the viewer. But it also, I mean, SML knows his audience very well. So it's giving us one more week of like, wait, is it real? No, it can't be. Can it? And, and I will say this, that. There is, if there's anything Esmail has been brilliant at, is is keeping us guessing. Um, sometimes, you know, more suspense than at other times. It's almost as if he's a schizophrenic magnet when you read the Reddit posts about him, where the people analyze every little, yeah. you know, shadow in, in each and every cut. And, and that's for a reason, because he actually leaves so much uh, for the viewer to find. It really rewards careful viewing. And I have faith, like you were saying in our special episode of, of Dark, which Patreon listeners uh, just received, um, you were saying that that you had faith in, in the showrunner. Yeah. I I have faith in S-Mail, but not, not from the text itself, not just because the four seasons have been good, because they've been, in some cases, hit or miss. I think yeah. this season, like you, ha- has been strong. But the reason I have faith is because he claims that he knew the end from the beginning. And if, if that's the case, then I think that he has worked out something pretty good in his mind. I, I, I have faith, but weirdly, 
I don't think I have as much faith in him as I do in the dark creator. Oh, wow. I don't yeah. understand why. Is that because like, you're I I might be pro-German and anti-Muslim? I, I, <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't imagine it's because I'm pro-German <laughs> or anti-Muslim. <laughs> I don't know, just that like sometimes that that even his twists are hit or miss. But I agree. I, I like even the way the, my positive reaction to if you had told me, oh, you're going to see this alternate world that might be White Rose's simulation or not. Like I would have thought, oh, God, that's that's going to be lame. And I actually think it was it's like I'm glad it's happening. So yeah. I'm pretty optimistic and I'm pretty and I'm definitely looking forward to seeing the, the two-part finale right let's go through the possibilities yeah, yeah so. to get to get to the possibilities which is possibility one real alternate universe right uh this is in fact the sci-fi suspicions have been there all along white rose commits suicide uh, because she knows that she's going to exist in this parallel world somehow and that's a real parallel world I right. don't and think... she does, by the way. I don't know if you mentioned it in your recap, but she is just the philanthropist. Right, right. Uh, She's existing Jane. in this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The White Rose Foundation is like, you know, made made yeah. a huge difference in this world. Everything's honking. Everything's rosy. Yeah. For each. So the other possibility is somehow uh, this is a creation of Elliot's mind as in the same sense that the multiple personalities is a creation of his mind. So through some form of of break, psychotic break, uh, Elliot is imagining this world, and this is what he imagines when he imagines uh, an alternate reality, when he's happy. Oh, by the way, that one of the things that happens in this world is Elliot's having migraines and there's like weird shit, right? So he's it's almost yeah. as if he knows that this is fake. Well, he 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 sees like Ecor kind of molds into blips into Fcor. It seems like the world right. is kind of cracking a little right. bit, and and there's some bleed from the previous world. So yeah, so one alternative is that it's in Elliot's head, and that he's creating it, or Mister Robot is creating it, just sort right. of like how he did in um, the first season in that wild dream in episode right. four where he was going to that, like it just seemed like he was going to this heroin den or whatever it was. Right. And all of that was just taking place in his hotel room. And the and he was interestingly proposing to Angela in that crazy dream where who is now marrying in this reality. And he was, and there was that fish, you know, the fish, uh, <laughs> yeah, Quirty, who was also in that scene with the, the bad scene with White Rose. So there's a lot to suggest that, you know, some of or all of this could be in Elliot's head. Well, yeah. So that's you bringing up the fish is is one of the reasons why this gets complicated, because that would it would probably mean that Elliot's uh, creating this world uh, is happens before the, the, the nuclear meltdown. Right. Yeah. So so that for a while he's been creating this world. And if that's the case, then finding a plausible instance in which Elliot started to be in his own mind would be, I think, difficult. And if you say the whole thing was in his mind, like that, that his his character, Elliot, the hacker was always in his mind. Then you're getting into like it was all a dream territory. 
and yeah, and, and I I don't I don't like that. It was pretty dreamlike when he goes to Washington Township. There was that billboard which you can't think is a real billboard. Right. Just in the car on the way, like well, he sees bodies. T- yeah, well, yeah, he sees the bodies, but he doesn't seem to react to them. I, I, so there was a lot of dreaminess. The photos of these famous physicists, Schrodinger and Brian Greene, even, and I guess they were blacked out. I didn't know who the photos were. Oh, I, I didn't saw this. That, yeah. I read this somewhere, so I don't know if this is true. But there were definitely these pictures of faces, and they're all blacked out in different colors. And it was interesting. Yeah. So there is a lot of dreaming. I want to add one other possibility, which is that the the reality that we get at the end is the real reality. And what we've been seeing all along is the alternate reality. And well, that's I mean, that's not different from I think from that it's all been in Elliot's head, right? Except that which Elliot are we talking about? So no, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, yeah, in, my, right. in this version, it's mm-hmm. all in the, You're right. uh, the Elliot from, that we see at the, in the last 15 minutes of this episode's head. And so, in other words, this would be like if, if Esmail is a fan of Mulholland Drive, and this is one of the more popular interpretations of Mulholland Drive— that it's the last little bit that's reality, that's closer to reality, yeah. and it's the first part that's the dream. It could be that, um, I suppose. Although that would be that would piss people off. I think a lot of people would be furious about. Yeah, it, it would. It would be weird, and it wouldn't explain why he's glitching. He right. appears to be glitching in that. So that brings me to then a, a potential fourth possibility, which is, as some have proposed that Elliot is in a simulation that White Rose has created or somebody has created so that rather than it being a reality generated by Elliot due to mental illness, for instance, it's actually a reality generated by someone else. And, um, and these events have just been part of a simulation. Now it's still hard for me to try to explain what happens when the screen goes to red between the the power plant melting down and Elliot, um, and Elliot being you know F Elliot or parallel. Some people so when would that simulation Elliot. start? Well, that's what I don't know. Yeah, it, and and as you say, the dreaminess of the beginning of the township scene uh, would indicate that somewhere between when he says goodbye to Darlene and he gets to Washington Township. You know, there is, um, you mentioned the similarity to Lynch. I haven't seen anybody talk about this, but there is a, a fairly famous story in comic, for, at least for comics, by Alan Moore, the writer of Watchmen, um, that's a one-off Superman story called For the Man Who Has Everything. And it basically involves Superman being, uh, th- there's an alien controlling his brain, but what he's controlling in his brain is, what he's doing is he's making Superman's ideal life. And so Superman is on Krypton, he's married, he's with his family, and everything's perfect. Um, But he starts noticing things that are slightly off, and there are earthquakes that he can't explain, and there are glitches, and Superman finally realizes that he's actually in, in some sort of dream and wakes himself up. It was super close to the way that Elliot is acting. Yeah, in yeah. totally because there was like a, this earthquake in New yep. York City, which that doesn't really happen. Right, 
And Angela is, we never see her. We see like a Skype, a shaky Skype yeah. image of her. I, that strikes me as plausible. I, yeah. I, did you see this Reddit theory called Endgame? It was on, it was a Reddit post. I just looked at it. I don't have it up, but it was sort of interesting. The idea is that this is all a, a loop, a cycle. Oh yeah, I did. That was and and that it's going to end in a way that you can start the first scene. So the new reality is taking place on the day that the the first season, the pilot episode, took place on. They're they're right. trying to get they're trying to land this big uh, account at Allsafe with now F Court used to be E Court, and I, I as I understand that theory. The the new Elliot, who we see at the very end of this episode, which we haven't mentioned, that uh, he goes into his apartment and right there is old Elliot in the hoodie. It's just Elliot staring at Elliot. And so the theory was that the, the Elliot that we know, the hoodie Elliot, sees this Elliot and can decide, does he want to stay in this world and be that guy? The guy that likes his routine and likes his job and is about to marry Angela and has a father that's loving and Angela's mom is still alive. And and if he does want to stay in that reality, then he has to send this other Elliot somehow back to where he was at the beginning of the show. And right. so that this keeps happening. So it started out as A core, then it was B core, then it was C core, then it was D core. What we saw was the Elliot getting kicked back from the nice reality to the kind of dirty, morphine-addicted reality. And that's why he doesn't know that Darlene is his sister, is because he doesn't ha- he didn't have a sister. Yeah. In, I think that's, yeah. I, that's, I like in that. The, There's yeah, something like kind of cool about that. In, and it just in, keeps happening until this Elliot decides, no, I don't want this dreamy yeah. kind of everything's uh, peachy reality. I want real life with all its scars and with all its suffering and pain i still take it so this is what people have referred to as the alderson loop in, yeah it, so that he's he's continuously you know talking about uh re- re- recurring cycles and in, in in dark um that this is a loop that he's in but i still don't i and i in fact read a comment that that was to that effect right during our little dog induced break Mm-hmm. Um, that it would be great if you if it actually I mentioned this about one of my favorite albums donuts that that when it ends it seamlessly goes into the beginning song so mm-hmm. you can actually play it it would be pretty fucking amazing if that's if if it ends in a way that the very first scene transition it transitions to the very first scene but but answer me this then so I, I'm not sure I understand this fully because so Elliot, at the beginning of the series, doesn't know that Darlene's his sister. He's just completed a hack, and he then goes on this big adventure. So that's the that's real reality. I don't know if anything is exactly real. So I think the idea there's a couple things that don't make sense to me about the theory. Which number one being the Elliot that we meet at the beginning of the series doesn't show signs of being like, he right. does seem confused and he does seem like he is. He's been reset. He seems he's been, like he's been reset. Yeah. He seems yeah. like he's been reset, 
But the idea is that if Hoodie Elliot kicks Douchey Elliot back to this beginning, but what does Douchey Elliot, who now becomes Hoodie Elliot, like, what does he know? What doesn't he know? He seems to have some sort. He knows that he works at All Safe, although he's not CEO anymore. Do you think Douchey Elliot is the, thir- the third? Or the I, fourth, th- I, I had that thought. Yeah, I yeah. think it's possible. I, I do think there is. I know this would piss people off, but there might be like, think about it thematically for the show. Douchey Elliot is a very successful hacker who now becomes a CEO of this company that keeps people safe from hacking, which is a good, solid thing for a person with those right. skills to do. And yet he he's nagged by the thought that there's something wrong with the world that he should try to fix and has like, these hacker wrong with... fantasies of like yeah. bringing down the the man bringing down the capitalist monsters that are out there and those fantasies play out in what we've seen as the whole show but the reality there is something i think thematically interesting about the reality is that he's just going to go and do his routine and marry angela and you know right yeah. douchey elliot says that he seems stuck in this loop so tyrell we haven't talked about too much tyrell yeah poses the question like what what is the worst you know what what makes you unhappy in this life and he says well like sort of just doing the same thing right like the the recurrence mm-hmm. of going to work every day uh which is a a hint of a cycle again um what is Ty- like who is tyrell like what the hell <laughs> i'm confused yeah and how does tyrell then take this new identity himself. Oh, one other thing that I want to mention is that it's it's significant that Darlene doesn't exist and that in that boardroom meeting of the family of young Elliot, the mom, and Mr. Robot, they said Darlene was the only person who could wake up the third Elliot. Mm, And so it does kind of seem like it's setting the stage for a Darlene to come maybe and wake this douchey Elliot up. Yeah. Huh. So what I was going to say is that what, however this is resolved, I can't, I can't think of how to make this all fit. And for that reason alone, I kind of got to thank Esmail, because <laughs> right. what, however he resolves this, I think it's going to be in a creative way that like it can't be just a dream. Right. So it can't be that the past four seasons were a dream. That would be bullshit. And and it would negate, you know, whatever emotional transformation he made when he realized whatever his emotional growth was when he realized his dad had had abused him. And and uh, I don't think that Esmail would do that. Not to mention the transformation of other characters. like Of other characters. I don't think that it is uh, a true sci-fi parallel world that White Rose has created. I think it's something to do with Elliot's psychological state. I do too. Um, but I don't, I can't, I can't make the pieces fit. And, and that, you know, <laughs> if the final show never aired, um, I think this would go down as a, pretty brilliant piece of of art for the four seasons with ups and downs but but still yeah, pretty good some, right 
what what if it did just end where we saw it just then you know with maybe yeah. some other capstone scene of Elliot I don't know something that 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 marked more of a final ending but without telling us anything more than we know already about the alternate world and its reality or not like I don't know if the show is quite like I think I, I think I want to know a lot more than I currently know, but I don't need to know everything. And I don't even think I, I said this earlier. I don't even think I need to know for sure whether it's a real alternate, you know, like simulation right. or a quantum world or whatever, <sighs> or it's in Elliot's head. But if I don't know that, then I want a good the narrative has to, yeah, yeah. then exactly the narrative has to be resolved and and yeah. Esmail, you know with his insistence on on focusing on characters and their development has to i think end it in a way that's satisfying for us understanding the journey the characters have gone through and that would require plot elements to be resolved because he's not a i don't at least i don't see Esmail as the uh lindelof lynch leave leave it completely unresolved just for the reason that he has, for the mysteries he has given us, like him being in prison or him being abused, he has wrapped it up fairly neatly for us. So if he doesn't wrap wrap it up in a way that that takes care of all these elements that, that are currently mysterious, it would surprise me. Can I give you a couple reasons to just be cautious or at least be cautiously optimistic rather than <laughs> yeah. fully optimistic. <laughs> so Twin Peaks and The Leftovers were two of his five favorite shows of the decade. And he said at one point, plot doesn't matter. Yeah, I, I know he said that, but the emotional journey does matter. It does. And, you, and the way that he has to wrap up the emotional journey will have to involve at least. So I'm, I, I mean, I think I'm agreeing with you in that if I don't know whether it's a simulation or a parallel universe, but somehow within the story, we get a resolution that, oh, yeah, Elliot has been in this loop or, oh, he's popped out of it or, you know, th there were four altars and this is how it explains what's gone on. Um, at least in in Elliot's mind, I'd be okay with that. Um, but you know, if it's the leftovers gave you a wrap up that was ambiguous, but it wrapped up. Yeah, yeah, um, and I, I think I think I would hope that that's what's going to happen here. I, I I worry though that if we just get the so called emotional resolution, it will be told to us like explicitly in yeah. ways that in, in <sighs> and such an obvious like I almost like I, I want know. to think that he's doing that on purpose for some higher goal but <laughs> I don't know if I believe you're very that. optimistic yeah, yeah because from the beginning the one thing that almost turned me off to the show was um, I think this is one of the things I, I texted you that 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 speech about about society it was too on the nose, and I think maybe Esmail's art is next level, except for this aspect. Yes, I agree. Um, you know, this. I just want to put this on on wax, as they say. There is a number eleven sixteen that keeps popping up. Yeah. Um, and I <laughs> randomly just looked up eleven sixteen in the Quran, and I want to read it just in case this. <laughs> And it says, 
These are they for whom there is nothing but fire in the hereafter, and what they wrought in it shall go for nothing, and vain is what they do. Which I think is pretty awesome. Yeah. Um, the the futility of, of anything that you do might be a nice a nice theme. Yeah, um, and very also tied to Ecclesiastes. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's um, interesting. Because that is, 1116 is a thing that they are calling attention to uh, all season. Um, yeah. And yeah. we don't know why, but we know it has some sort of importance. And I think... I appreciate about Esmail that he like that he knows the conversation that's going on, and I don't know that he's cognizant of that. Yeah. And I hope that because he's cognizant of that, it doesn't make him do fan service like the new Star Wars or something like that. Ugh. But it does make him realize that he owes something to a very devoted fan base, and we are yeah. devoted too, in spite of our carping about certain aspects of it it is one of the best shows of the last 10 years i don't know if it's one of the best 10 but it's one of the best and we have loved I mean, talking about it yeah here's i think here's the way i feel about it if if i were to write down the things that i like about this show that list would rival uh the any other list but if you then made me write down the things that i don't like about the show if you did the math right it it, it might not work but that's a but, good way of but putting I it. Like it has more of that yeah, than the other shows that I love. Yeah. Like I think the something like The Leftovers in its in the Did you finish that by the way? No. We got sidetracked by okay. Fosse Verdon uh in my family. I won't be really anything, but I think that that Lindelof has sort of mastered the show don't tell with the way that the characters experience emotion. It's way more understated. They never ever give a speech that speechifying is just non-existent i for the first like six episodes or something which we've seen that's very evident and i like it i love i really like that about it okay should we wrap this up yeah let's wrap this up but uh, but we're excited i I hope we don't sound too critical because now like i am pretty excited to see how it turns out and it's been a it's been a great achievement yeah yeah i'm 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 bullish on it no matter what unless (laughs) unless the you know unless not yeah unless he does something terrible (laughs) it'll just be every character telling you exactly the emotional journey that they've experienced over the last four years (laughs) like breaking the fourth wall and just being (laughs) like you might have seen in episode three I uh, picked up the banana. <laughs> the Darlene episode was sort of like that, too, where she's like, Every, my whole life, I've always relied on somebody else. But now I've realized that I can. Uh, it was like it was it was like bad young adult fiction. Yeah. Uh, but, we're but supposed again, to be positive. Let's we're trying to be positive. positive. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love Mr. Robot. I love right. Mr. Robot. However many altars there are, I love them all. <laughs> yeah. All right. We'll be right back to Toho. Get ready. to talk about trash talking tamler did you know that mathematicians have found a formula that actually tells you the probability of how many sexual partners you'll have over your lifetime no i did not know that yeah it's a is that that's something that maybe we don't want to know there should be an app for that just like in in incel or not app but (laughs) but you, you know how i know that um 
I just read Hannah Fry's book, The Mathematics of Love. Hannah Fry is, is uh, a mathematician who I've mentioned before um, gushingly. She has a book that I've been wanting to read, um, but I haven't had just haven't had the time to read completely. So when I say I read it, I actually just read the summary on Blinkist, like literally right before we recorded, and I got all of the highlights. And I'm going to get the book because because of that. And just what is the formula out of curiosity? Oh, it's too complicated for us. Uh, it's like <laughs> shit. <laughs> it's seven plus or minus two. I can't just run the numbers uh, right now. <laughs> You can't run the. We need GiveWell to run the numbers. Can you guys do a side project for us? <laughs> um, anyway, Blinkist is an app, um, a service for anyone who cares about learning but doesn't have a lot of time. Blinkist takes the key insights from over 3,000 nonfiction bestsellers in over 27 categories and condenses them down into 15 minute what they call blinks, which is basically on my iPhone, uh, you just swipe through like 10 or 15 pages and it summarizes each chapter. Um, uh, but they, you can also do blink it on- is like, that's a long blink. I would call that more <laughs> of like a nap. It's like, a, <laughs> like a really, it's like a blink when I've had a lot of Vicodin. Exactly. <laughs> um, you can also do it on audio uh, and uh, basically can just, you know, help you summarize and understand the main points of each book. Um, 12 million people already use Blinkist to deepen their knowledge in over 27 categories, including self-improvement, mm. which we need, personal <laughs> personal growth, management and leadership. I think you and I ha- have had some some issues with management. <laughs> we, we need to power through some, some blinks on uh, management and leadership, I think, for sure. Uh, you know, I have a deep respect for books. And I personally use Blinkist as as a way to vet whether I'm going to read a book or not. But even if I don't decide to read a book, I can get the gist already. So that's that's basically how I use it. I already recommended the Hannah Fry book, The Mathematics of Love, which she's a great, great, great writer. Um, but I also saw on their on their most listened to list is Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow, which I actually have to admit, I never read the whole thing. Um, but I'm just going to do the Blinkist thing and pretend. <laughs> is that, that system one to do the Blinkist or system, system two? Like that, that Reading that book, I think, is system two all the way. Yeah. Oh, okay. um, all right. Right now, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Uh, go to Blinkist.com slash very bad wizards to start your free seven day trial and get 25% off a Blinkist premium membership. That's Blinkist spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. Blinkist.com slash VeryBadWizards and get 25% off and a seven-day free trial. Thank you to Blinkist for supporting this episode.
Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. This is the very predictable time of the show, uh, but still very genuine time when we want to thank everybody, uh, especially in the way that you communicate with us and uh, and the way that, in fact, you communicate with each other. Uh, we really appreciate all of the emails, all of the tweets and comments. Um, you, as we say often, keep us going with that. And as our audience has grown, it's it's still stayed positive weirdly we really appreciate it um if you want to get in touch with us you can email us verybadwizards at gmail.com we read them all can't reply to them all um but we still appreciate it you can tweet to us at verybadwizards or at tamler and at peas you can what am i missing you can check us out you can follow us on instagram where we post for each episode you can uh rate us on itunes we have gotten too many new reviews but we always love love to read your reviews or give step us a rating step it up a notch you guys are falling behind uh and i don't know listen to us on spotify whatever we like those spotify numbers uh, and if you'd like to support us in more tangible ways you can do it one of two ways you can become a patron one of our beloved patreon supporters and we've put out a we put out a few bonus episodes recently we had uh we just put out one on dark the two seasons of dark which i just love and i think have infected the way i'm watching mr robot like i'm, I'm sort of mm, yeah going, yeah like, you I, have, I think i'm but, bitching yeah. about mr robot more because of how much i like dark but anyway we did a bonus episode on it <laughs> and i have to leave that alone um the uh we also you and barry lamb did an episode on um star trek star trek yeah and you're about to do one with mark linsenmeyer well not a bonus episode it's for his new podcast it's for his new podcast on the watchman mm. right yeah yeah the lindelof watchman and i guess the whole watchman universe but yeah you and barry lamb and mark linsenmeyer should just have a threesome get it over with you know well, actually, we've been starting our own podcast. I didn't want to tell you. We have actually more more iTunes reviews and supporters than Very Bad Wizards does. Uh, I've it's expected like... this. This is what always happens to the Jews eventually. <laughs> just, just surprised I made it this far. Uh, yeah, so you can become one of our beloved patrons. Um, you get ad-free versions of all of our episodes at any level of support. $2 and up, you get bonus episodes. $5 and up. You have our un, unlimited gratitude and also um, get to vote on our episode. Yeah. D- did you mention my beats? I think you just forgot. Oh, my God. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the the volumes of Dave's beats. You have what now? Four volumes, right? Four volumes. Yeah. Yeah. And they're awesome. Yep. Thank you. We are really grateful to all of you for your financial support. We work hard on these episodes, and so it's really gratifying to um, be rewarded in all the different ways that you that you do. And so, thank you. All right, so it's time to get to the the main topic. It feels like we've been doing this for two <laughs> like two days straight. Um, and all right, so so I um I uh, pitched this to Tamler really because because the topic of trash talking 
or shit talking or whatever. I, I, I prefer the term shit talking um, is I think right up our alley. I think it's, it's fun. It ties in nicely to, it's so central to so many sports. It is um, central to hip hop. It is central to politics and it Trump, is something like Trump's Trump. Like success. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It, shit talking has always flowed easily from my mouth. I enjoy it. I, I think that that's one of the only forms of competition that I like to engage in. So there happened to be a couple of papers on trash talking. Uh, so, so I pitched a couple. The first one is called Trash Talking Competitive Incivility motivates rivalry performance and unethical behavior by Jeremy Yip, Maurice Schweitzer, and Samir Noor Mohammed. Um, I'll say I learned about this from actually uh, recently giving a talk at Georgetown and I met Jeremy Yip, who's a, a wonderful guy. So whatever trash Tamler talks uh, about him personally is ad hominem and is unfair. Um, he disgraced his family, the Yip <laughs> family name with this paper. <laughs> Uh, and then there's another one I don't know how much we'll talk about, but it's it's uh, I, I sent it to Tamler because I thought it was a more descriptive, exploratory paper. So the one that I just mentioned by Yip et al. is is a set of six experimental studies in in a lab setting, and this one was more of a uh, this more of an ex- exploratory, at least pitched as an exploratory study, and. Uh, called Trash Talking and Trolling by Kevin Kniffen and Dylan Palacio, uh, which I, the name sounded familiar and I realized Dylan Palacio actually was in my, one of my classes as an undergraduate. So it's nice to at least see him doing work. Um, it turns out that it was maybe not what I thought it was. And so I think all I've done is give you, give you another thing to complain about. It would be nicer to see him doing like good work, but uh, but yeah, <laughs> but I think what we can at least agree about, like, well, tell me this, like the the introduction of the Yip et al, where he tries to at least form some conceptual notion of what it means to trash talk. Is there anything there that you found interesting to talk about? Like, well, um, so that's a, it's a good question because there's a kind of philosophy paper that I hate, which takes like a really interesting topic you know, whether it's like friendship or infidelity or like snitching, whistleblowing, and then just conceptually analyzes it to death, gives like a really sterile analysis, like, and so you don't feel like you've learned anything and you feel like you're less interested in the topic than you were before. (laughs) Like this paper, there's some conceptual analysis in it, but like, if anything, that was like, the only part that was I thought mildly interesting um, is the way yeah. that they conceptualize trash talking. Now, whether we need a conceptual analysis of trash talking or whether we already kind of know what it is is a separate question. But I think if they were going to do it, they did a decent job with with it. Yeah, and I think they're 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 at least I think from their perspective it's not so much a conceptual analysis it's trying to say, well, if we're going to study trash talking, we need to come up with some definition of it. That's not yeah. as you pointed out, it's not I don't think it's always necessary because there are things like, you know, famously in emotion research defining what an emotion is 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 difficult, but that doesn't mean you can't discuss people and see what happens. 
Um, no, nobody needed like a tight definition of what an emotion is in order to to go about doing that. So I, I think this is just trying to put in context what trash talking is and, and maybe more importantly, what they don't mean by trash talking. So their definition is boastful comments about the self or insulting comments about an opponent that are delivered by a competitor, typically before or during a competition. So right away, the competitive context is something I guess I'd I guess is obvious, right? I I never really thought about it, but but trash talking does seem to be l- limited to a competitive, like whether it's a an imagined competition with a rival or a real formal yeah, competition. I mean, it's, it's uh, so like we'll sometimes shit talk to psychologists for beers, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Now we are not really in any kind of defined competition they don't they wouldn't exist if it weren't for us they pretty much owe us most to all of their success we're the fathers of their style (laughs) yeah exactly so 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 if you define competition as loosely as two people having a podcast you know yeah but i yeah i i think in this case that that it's an interesting thing that you point out the trash talking is in some sense what makes it seem like we're competitive Mm-hmm. So, so if we're portraying mock right. competitiveness, like our trash talking is what the very thing that is portraying the competition. So people might infer that competition. Um, but yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, they, they give a very loose definition. I don't think they're trying to give necessary and sufficient conditions. Like Definitely. Even not. the fact that yeah. they say typically before or during a competition. Yeah. Um, and they, interestingly, I had never, I mean, I guess I've heard people talk about incivility generally but i didn't i never came across the term as a as a psychological term or some something that researchers would study but they they view trash talking as a subset of incivil uh behavior incivility which is um, weird because yeah. they say it can also be malicious or playful because they say that it can often happen between more friendly people is that then not Trash talking is what we do with two psychologists, four beers, not trash talking yeah. according to how they're operationalizing this or I, you know, I think that 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 is a case in which incivil behavior like has is not a de- it's not a definition of motivation because I think you're right. There, there are plenty of friendly competitions where trash talking I think everybody would agree it really is trash talking. Like, you know, you look at some of the old uh, footage from the Dream Team in the Olympics, whatever yeah. year that was, um, where they're talking shit to each other. And they're a team. And and it's, you know, maybe someone got pissed in the heat of the moment at some point, but it's pretty clear that they're all getting along. I think that calling it incivility is only demarcating the content of the stuff, right? So if you say, like, I'm going to kill you, I'm going to destroy you. Those words are like negative words, but that's the only way in which I can think that this is could be considered yeah. incivil. Um, but I, yeah, I mean, I guess so. I don't know the larger incivility literature. I'm sure it's horrific. I didn't, I didn't even know it existed. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> the it seems like incivility does involve intention. That's how I understand it's, that term. I don't care, but. That's how I understand the yeah, term, that yeah, it is yeah. actually something that isn't just playful banter. 
it is something that is... Uh, I agree. I agree. Yeah. I agree. It should be a motivational definition. Yeah. Um, but w- for whatever it's worth, like whether it doesn't really matter whether it's a subset of incivility or not. All right. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our favorite, maybe our favorite sponsor, GiveWell. The holiday season, Dave, is almost over. This is our last episode of the year, and so there's no better time to make your philanthropic activity count. Hanukkah is coming up. Christmas is coming up. We all want to help people, or at least most of us want to help people, but giving can be hard. When you donate, how do you know how how or what your charity can actually accomplish with your money. I think we've talked about this before, but whenever we we teach the the Peter Singer ethics, you know, we're we're giving people these puzzles. Um, one of the first things people say is, "Well, I don't know what the charity's going to do with it." But that's one of the things GiveWell does. They spend thousands of hours vetting everything these charities are going to do. So so if you really have that doubt, um, you need not. Yeah, you're going to have to come up with a deeper, more thoughtful objection to peter singer's argument then the charities don't actually do anything with your money give wells recommended charities work to prevent children from dying from cheaply preventable diseases um, and they help people in dire poverty their charities can treat intestinal parasites for less than a dollar, provide a malaria treatment to a child for less than $10, save a life for a few thousand dollars. And tomorrow night, Dave, is the first night, as I'm sure you know, of Hanukkah. And just like last year, we always devote the first night to charity donations, and I'm making mine to give well. Last year, Eliza made hers to give well, but I think Eliza's uh this year is going to a local animals shelter. So I am going to proudly take over the GiveWell charity mantle. So um, you can learn how much good your donation could do by visiting givewell.org slash verybadwizards. Many of you have gone there already. We have a very generous group of listeners. Um, But if you haven't gone there... Go to givewell.org slash verybadwizards. Their recommendations are free for anyone to use, and GiveWell doesn't take any cut of your donation. First-time donors, you will have your donation matched up to $1,000 if you donate through givewell.org slash verybadwizards. So if you're a first-time donor and you go to givewell.org slash verybadwizards, you will have your donation matched up to $1,000. That's even more good that your charitable donation can do. And I was just going to add that we know for a fact, because they keep track of these sorts of things, that our listeners are very generous. So I just want to toss in a thank you to all the listeners who have actually done it. Their money to match our uh, our listeners' donations, they have it and they need to use it. This episode is going to come out December 24th. You still have time. Set up an account. Put that money to good use um, and be generous of spirit. Thank you so much to GiveWell for supporting this podcast. And thanks to our listeners for supporting GiveWell. So the central question of this paper is, does shit-talking actually improve the performance of the opponent? So, you know, you're playing against a player and that player says something to you. Presumably, I think, in the mind of the the person who's shit-talking, 
um, they're trying to to get in your head, rattle the yeah. opponent, right, to reduce their performance. And I think the central argument of this paper and and the the point of their experiments is to show that in fact this boosts the motivation of the opponent. Like if what you really want is for them not to perform as well, then uh, then you should actually not trash talk. Can can I just? Yeah, jump in. Yeah. Clearly, that is going to depend on the person who's doing the trash talking, the person who's getting trash talked, the context of it, whether it's on a basketball court or whether it's in a chess match or whether it's in like well, how good you are at this. Yeah, at the how thing good, how good crushed. both both parties are. Right. Exactly. Okay. So, so like, yeah. yeah it's, so I, I kind of want to, maybe we should talk about that. So, so I'm just going to give the, the rough sure. uh, outline of what the, the experiments are. Um, the experiments involve bringing people into the lab two actual participants into a lab and having them chat with each other for a couple of minutes. And then at that, and being told that they're going to play a competitive game with each other and at that point, a confederate takes over and the participants either receive a message that is uh, trash talky yeah. or a message that is neutral. So to give you an example of one of them says, uh, so you've uh, like, say I'm playing this with you. We've just had like a nice chat. We get told that we're about to play this game. And then I type to you, you think. Just to let you know, that prize is mine. I'm totally going to crush you in this task. I'm going to send you home crying to your mommy, sucker. Uh, so that's the trash-talking condition. This is and like from the 70s. <laughs> the participant will think they got into a time travel machine and went back to yeah, uh, like mid-70s. I think you're swell. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's the uh, control. And then in the neutral, yeah, and then in the neutral condition, which is present in most of the studies, um, then there's various neutral conditions, but the general one is something like whoever does the task better will get the prize. Let's see what happens. <laughs> um, <laughs> that would freak so, me out, actually. <laughs> well, let's see what that. happens. That would get in my head right there. Let's see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> uh, here's another one. Uh, I'm smarter than you. I'm faster than you. I'm going to beat you so bad. That's at least yeah. that sounds plausible. Hey, hey, dummy, you're going to lose and you're going to lose bad. End of story, exclamation, exclamation. So uh, then people actually engage in this task. Uh, the task is a um, it's just a game where you have to use a slider to actually I, I don't know exactly what it is, but but it's basically the more effort you put into it, the more points you get. And um, what they show across across these studies is that getting somebody to trash talk to you boosts your performance compared to the neutral. Um, and it's, it's, it's that trash talking is actually increasing effort based performance. And that this is because trash talking makes you seem like a rival and that causes you to be motivated to beat somebody else. So, you know, they do some, uh, uh, clever versions of this where the participants are allowed to take a smaller amount of prize money. So they get paid for their performance in this. Um, they get to take, they take a, they opt to take a smaller amount of the prize money to ensure that the trash talker gets zero. 19% of, of people in a trash talking condition are willing to take a financial hit just to make sure 
that the their opponent who trash talked them doesn't go home with any extra money, whereas none of the people in the neutral condition were willing to do that. So now here's here's where I think the the, the heart of I th- I think the heart of your disagreement is something like this context isn't telling us a lot about trash talking as we observe it in the real world, right? Is that, is that the, the gist of? Yeah. I mean, I would put it in stronger terms, more like it obviously isn't telling us about it. It also, there isn't some sort of universal or general answer to this question. So even just approaching the question in this manner, as if you could even in principle, devise an experiment that would tell you um, the effects of trash talking in contexts like a professional office or on the basketball court or on the football field or on a golf course or the dynamics of how much better one person is than the other Um And also the kinds of trash talking that you can do. You know, do you go at their family like Zidane, you know, in uh, the World Cup, which we've talked about? So it just seems like such a rich phenomenon, trash talking, that this to me doesn't come close to even nibbling at in an interesting way way um but i do think it also the what you're saying is the the worry about generalizability or external validity as we <laughs> psychologists like to call it i think is 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 real and i although i should talk them two psychologists for beers just did an episode called against experiments where and especially yoel although i think mickey was um, very sympathetic to what Yoel was saying, but Yoel was worried about the fact that these experiments don't do a good job of capturing what we care about and basically just provide existence existence proofs for for things that we already knew. And this seems like uh, a paradigmatic example of that. If you set up an experiment in a certain way, you can show that, yes, trash talking will make people work a little harder at a at a task, but that doesn't, like, we knew, we already knew that, that that but can did, happen sometimes. Okay, so, so, like, let me start broadly with your concern. So, I don't think the task could ever be in an experiment uh, to give us the richness of all the situations in which trash talking occurs and to give us the nuance of the difference between talking about family or whether it's soccer versus basketball or whether you're skilled or unskilled. I don't think that was ever the goal. And I think that that only a huge body of literature could actually uh, could actually inform that broad question. Right. That's why that's why I think we have to proceed by having a bunch of people do studies and report all of the things that they find. I think this is very much an existence proof. No experiment can meet those conditions, the lofty conditions of of informing us about all the richness of trash talking. And I think that it would be a disservice to Yip at all to think that they don't think that the world of trash talking is rich and, and nuanced. I, I right? maybe they do, but then they shouldn't be doing these experiments if they But why but why not? Because in here's where I think the crux of it is. If you believe that this is an internally valid, that is, this was a trash-talking manipulation perceived as such from the, from the participant's point of view, 
and the trash talking conditions. And if you believe that these performance measures of of the game are also valid measures of of motivation, then I think you can conclude that in this context, this trash talking motivates people to work harder. Now, did we already know that? Well, I, I don't know, because it seems as if it was very plausible that you could have an outcome that trash talking would demotivate you. And they don't find that. So, But, but I think no, that wait, fi- like, that's just wrong. Like, this isn't showing that trash talking never demotivates you or even that it often doesn't demotivate you. It just shows that there is a certain kind of condition where trash talking would motivate you. But we knew that. But like there's this whole concept of bulletin board material where someone will say something and like Bill Belichick is constantly putting up things that people have said about the Patriots, opposing players have said about it on the bulletin board. It's like a cliche. Don't give them bulletin board material because then they'll work harder. Then they'll be more motivated. Like we already knew this. This is I well, this is I think the this is Yoel and Mickey's point is that yeah. like we the thing that they're showing is not something deeply surprising or at all surprising like this is stuff that we know and if you want to set up an experiment to show show it and make it seem sciency like oh look mommy i'm a scientist i'm doing an experiment you can do it but like that's not that's not telling us anything it's not enlightening us about- your your criticism of this as sciency smacks of somebody who read one article about the problems with psychological ups, like studies <laughs> i've read so many though it's not just one uh, yeah but you know i read a lot about quantum mechanics but i don't know how to do it so like i like <laughs> you, don't, you don't have to know how to do it. To, I mean, like we, you've in a different guise have made the same complaint. Like, I, but 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 it isn't the case that I think that experiments can't show something, right? I I actually think that in this set of studies, they could have found demotivating they, a demotivating effect. Now you could argue. You scientist Tamler, real scientist Tamler, you could argue that they <laughs> could scientist. they could they could set up a scenario that showed demotivation, in which case it would be interesting. And it would be interesting to have a follow up set of studies to say, well, under what conditions is trash talking demotivating? And so but, through a large body of experimental studies, you could actually say something about what the particular features of a situation that make trash talking demotivating matter. And you've already given some possibilities about this. Right? It could be that if the task is difficult, people give up sooner with trash talking. Or it could be that in, in some cases, uh, who is trash talking to you makes a difference. There isn't there's nothing about like what's what strikes me as your criticism is that you just never believe that any experiment can show anything. And not even Yoel would believe that. Right. Like this is not the heart of the criticism. So I guess the real substantive disagreement then is whether this kind of experiment will ever show us anything or can ever show us anything interesting about trash talking, the thing that we care about, the thing that we're trying to investigate. And because it's so artificial and because it's so context specific. I don't think it's that artificial. Why, why do you think it's so artificial? Like you're actually interacting a with a, a stranger and they're... But, well, the, so the game, if you play a video game, like if you're a gamer and you're playing online, it doesn't, you know, whatever the game is and somebody is is 
trash talking while you're playing. That happens all the time, right? Like Halo isn't, you know, like it doesn't meet the conditions of external validity in that sense. But you could ask the question, like, does somebody trash talking in your ear while I'm playing a novel video game? Uh, does it demotivate me? That's right. You can even say like this only works for this slider game. But if that's what they're saying, that it only works for this slider game, then I don't think anybody would care. The extent to which we care about this is that it shows something potentially interesting about tr that we didn't know before about trash talking in general. And that's where I think it doesn't. Now, if, okay, if so, it was... So Sorry, I was just going to say, do you, like, I'm trying to get at the heart of your criticism of this because it sounds like there are two things you could be saying. One is that you can never have a lab-based experiment that says anything interesting about psychological phenomena, right? And that's Well, about that's maybe separate. this psychological phenomena. Yeah, well, okay, that's what I'm trying to get at, whether, whether this is, uh, this is uh, disagreement about whether this particular psychological phenomenon was was manipulated and measured properly in this experiment or whether it's even possible to to make bona fide discoveries about behavior and, and psychology in an experimental manipulation this so, is but, i i, I want to say something stronger but i want to okay so i was getting to this question so if if in this study but if they said well we don't know if, if uh this works in something like a sports setting so we brought athletes in to shoot free throws and we had some people trash talk before they shot free throws and it turns out that in this case it does have a jarring effect right so you you randomly assign the person who's about to shoot free throws to get trash talked by by a, somebody else on the court and you measure whether or not uh they you know how many free throws they made and you have a finding that in the trash talking condition, whatever, either they made fewer or more. Like what I want to know is, is that, a, is that knowledge to you? Is that something that we learned? I mean, I would have to know the specifics of the, of the experiment, but I do think there is a problem of like a deep problem with how, how are you supposed to determine what reason do we have to think that the results of an experiment like this would generalize to contexts that we actually give a shit about. Not undergrads coming in to shoot free throws for extra credit or even athletes coming in to this to shoot free throws in this kind of setting where I don't know how that would work, but it would have to be like a confederate athlete believably plausibly trash talking them and maybe you could manipulate whether they knew the person or whether they didn't and if if you could do all those things in some kind of uh i don't know formal way maybe i'm very skeptical though but i think the sort of deep problem is with with an experiment like this is what it's like i it's a burden of proof thing what reason do we have to think that this would generalize but, to other contexts, to the context that we're actually, I, the reason we're even talking about this is because you and I are interested in trash talking as it appears in real life. Right. As so, it, so I, I, I don't, I, I want to separate the generalizability from just the belief that they've shown something about this game in this context with undergrads. Like I, I just, 
I, yes, they did, I guess. But no, I didn't care about like how they would perform in a inane uh, sliding task or right. whatever. You care you care about like if they performed in in like a the real world, like right? If you if you could do an experiment where right before a Patriots kicker kicks, you had somebody say something about his mom, right? And you had enough observations that you uh, and and random uh, manipulations so that you knew that if somebody yelled, "Your mom's a whore." right before the kicker kicked and you have multiple kickers and you find some difference, you could conclude that in that context, trash talking did something right. right? If you had those results yeah. and no matter how field the study is like, no matter how externally valid it is, you'll always have the problem of generalizability because if I care about how trash talking influences video game players, I would say who gives a fuck about your kicker, Right. That's just always going to be a problem with an experiment, and it's going to be a problem with any field observational study. If Except that think- a field observational study at least starts out with something that you care about, whereas nobody cares about but how people perform okay, in slider, but, but uh, inane a, slider a, tasks. But that's a different criticism than the generalizability criticism. Right. Well, no, because no, I disagree, because the only way that we could care about how people are performing in this inane slider task is if we thought that generalized beyond that uh, particular task to some other context that we do care about. That's right. But I'm saying that you could say the same thing. Right. Uh, Aside from Patriots fans. You could say the same thing about the generalizability of that particular experiment. So, sure, right? You you can buy you can buy that this experiment showed that people are more motivated in this inane slider task, but but I at least want you to agree that there is no single experiment that could meet the criteria of generalizing to all of the rich, nuanced trash talking. Um, there's not uh, even right. a set of observations that could meet that richness. The only way to to explore that richness is to do many many different studies. Yeah, so there is a question, and this uh, this is not one. This is something I'm still sort of wrestling with. Uh, By the way, in I my missed, own, I missed this, Tamler. I missed this. I missed this argument. Yeah, I, this, I know. This. It's. Uh, <laughs> I think hopefully our listeners have too. Um, part of me thinks this just isn't like the scientific method is not the right way to approach trash talking. It because. It's too diverse a phenomenon. It's too context dependent. And, you know, Shea Serrano, who does this great, like, like the most disrespectful dunks of the decade or something like that, you know, like Sean Kemp nuts in your face. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Like, Mm -hmm. like that's the kind of thing. And then just people giving examples of trash talking, which I think maybe like journalism is better. Maybe sociology would be better. Maybe anthropology to just kind of do ethnographies of trash talking like that. This the more qualitative approach for something like this, I think might be more appropriate than any kind. So it's not just criticizing <laughs> Yip at all. For like, I think maybe it is the task of what they're trying to do is doomed from the outset. Part yeah. of me is drawn to that view that this is not the right right way of approaching the problem. Right. That's 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 what I. I I sort of always suspect your view to be. And that's why I think that the non-starters are whether these are, you know, internally valid tasks or, or whatever. Right. I think that, that if you think that it's never going to get you something interesting, 
then that's something that is a deep flaw with the the whole field that doesn't have that much to do with how we measure things, right? Because all of the discussion about how we measure things and how we manipulate things and how we um, come up with our lab-based studies, those all have a, an optimism to them that that is... If we improve the way we measure something, if we improve the way we operationalize something, if we improve the tasks that we use to make them more like real world tasks, then we will get to something interesting about human nature, maybe even some rules about human nature. So if somebody followed up with the YIP studies and manipulated whether it was trash talking about family or 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 about athletic ability, and they manipulated whether it was high stakes or low stakes, and they manipulated whether it was uh, difficult versus easy, right? Skill, like that we would accrue knowledge um, that is telling us something interesting. That's one possibility that I think is the optimism at the heart of even the open science reform, which is we'll get there. We just need to do a better job of it. Your pessimism is deeper. Your pessimism is there's no measure, there's no manipulation that will get this to be saying anything interesting. Yes, that's correct. Um, I think there is a part of the open science movement, as I understand it, that is optimistic. We have to improve our techniques, get people to pre-register their hypotheses. You know, one worry about this study is they set it up in a way that they kind of could suspect that they would confirm their hypotheses, even their non-obvious hypotheses. And pre-registering it, I guess, would take care of that. And so I do think there is a darker side of the open science movement. Again, I think they were getting into that in Two Psychologists, Four Beers. I think this paper, I don't know if you read it yet, The Generalizability Crisis by Tal Yarconi that just came out and was the subject of some debate. It's totally pessimistic and, and, and very much with a little stats stuff that I don't understand very much uh, in of a piece with some of the stuff that I've been worried about for the last few years, which is that this generalizability can't be solved. Or he has this whole section, what should we do? And one of them is you should just leave the field because the field is is not doing what it claims it can do and it can't do it. And then the other is they should be more honest, at least, about what they're doing. And he says... We should use titles like transient manipulation of self-reported anger influences small hypothetical char charitable donations. Uh, we should title our papers that instead of uh, hot head, warm heart, anger increases economic charity. And so like this paper yeah. is like that, right? Trash talking, competitive incivility motivates rivalry performance and unethical behavior like that's not what this does. It it should be called undergrads spend a little more time moving sliders when they receive uh, like some sort of canned insult from uh, an anonymous person, either online or in the lab, who's competing with them in something that is so inane, the slider moving contest. I guess now the title is going too long. But but I take what Yarconi is saying as to be deeply pessimistic. Not It's not just a question of improving your techniques. And then, uh, it is a question of we are going about this the wrong way and we need a deep reckoning in a way that I think we do in a lot of philosophy, too. Well, yeah, the, the philosophy reckoning will be very, very different from the, the psychology reckoning. But... <laughs> 
So, so here's the thing. You could be deeply pessimistic about generalizability and still be okay in believing that we're making progress one study at a time. So it is an open question whether or not the inane task with the canned trash-talking response um, is going to be the same as the non-canned response with undergraduates or whether it's going to work with, you know, New England Patriots kickers. But the 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 fact that lab studies can't generalize and by the way i agree with the like the claims need to be much narrower right so so we yeah. do need You've a deep rec- yeah we do need a deep reckoning about what it is that we're showing i think that in some cases as i think you always mentioning like like the milgram studies there is something deep about the demonstration itself that um that even if it is limited to the conditions in which Mil- that, that Milgram created, it's jarring and unsettling uh, that 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 can be done given the the manipulations that were used, right? Assuming yeah, that's interesting. Which I think we should talk about at another time. But uh, yeah, because it I, I agree it's it's jarring, it's surprising. Um, does it? tell us what we think it tells us is a different question but yeah. right well it if if you believe the results and all it tells you is that in right it like if you believe that that yeah. participants believed in what they're doing sure then it, it tells us that it doesn't take much to get people to to shock someone uh pretty nastily like and that that's interesting right yeah. um and and uh milgram meticulously changed various parameters to see what worked and what wouldn't. Um, now, does that, does that generalize to even modern humans? I'm not, sh- I'm not sure. I'm not sure. But, um, but here's where my optimism lies because I, you know, I'm also deeply skeptical about what it is we're doing when we do experiments, right? I, I share that with you, but I do think that we can, make progress in what we understand by many people doing many experiments, none of which satisfy generalizability at all, and combining that with descriptive research in the way that um, that Paul Rosen's article stated. Because I think all the descriptive stuff in the world is still not going to get me uh, the kind of information that I might want to know. So for instance, if I want to simply know, say I'm a I'm a um, I'm the owner of a football team, and I want to know, do I tell my players to shit talk more or less? And I could do some really interesting analyses, right? And I so, sorry, and I might to finish that thought, and I might actually say, you know what? In fourth quarter pressure situations when the game is tied, shit talking has been like we see a statistical pattern. Uh, that would would give us a underlying reliable piece of advice, which is shit talk the kicker under those conditions. Right? I mean, you might not, but but that it could be that that happens, and you've learned at least something. What you've learned might be just predicting human behavior. I think the so, and in fact, there are all sorts of ways in which you can measure the very thing that you're interested in like understanding so if what you're understand if you if we're interested in charitable donations we can measure charitable donations directly so let's take google as an example or wikipedia actually wikipedia can do uh right they're always on a a, a drive 
uh, once once a year to to get money. They uh, manipulate the message that people get to ask them for money. You you get those messages, right? Yeah, for sure. There's so many people uh, who get those messages. They've actually done this, right? They'll tweak something about the message, right? It'll either have a picture of Jimmy Wales or it won't, right? It'll either have a, a plea for empathy or it won't. It'll, you know, they can, they can yeah. do various tests and they can actually show with some statistical certainty the kind of message that's more likely to lead to donations. That's information that doesn't need to be generalized because it is right. finding exactly what we need to find. Exactly, so but it's starting out with the very thing that they're interested in finding out. Which is that's right. the, the, which is like what's the thing that we can put at the top of the page that will make people donate the most? And so that's right. yes, then experiments are really useful. And I'm not denying that data and experiments can be really useful, like the shift in baseball. You know, like that is something they're starting out trying to figure out what will be the best places we can put fielders to get this batter out. And because that's something that you can easily control, you can try all these different configurations and and look at where the player hits the ball. And if uh, they're more of a pull hitter, you can put the second baseman on the, on the shortstop side and you can test out how that works. And you do enough of those and you will get some reliable information that you can act on. So that's not the issue. And, and to the extent that psychologists are doing that, that they're starting with the phenomenon that they're interested in and then doing these manipulations, I'm totally, you know, that can that that can be really interesting. But but the my issue with this is that nobody cared about the sliding task thing between undergrads and this particular bit of trash talking that they did. So there, I think the interest and the information provided by the study depends on it generalizing at least beyond what it actually was. Um, right. And so that's what so, I don't see happening. Well, so there's there's some case there's some attempt to, you know, shift it to right in the study where they do competitive versus cooperative where they're trying to find some some difference in the task itself that might lead to a difference in results. So within that set of studies, you can imagine they, they're, they're saying something. They're at least saying, um, right, here's a, like, and even if all they're saying is, here is a place to start looking. Um, if we want, if we want to get a rich a rich understanding of trash talking. What these lab studies can do is at least point us in the direction of something interesting, right? We've manipulated cooperative versus versus uh, competitive. Now let's look in the real world to see if that difference bears out. Is there a regularity in what we consider cooperative versus competitive tasks in which we could also see this? So a prediction is made where we say, now let's, let's go to the real world, right? Let's go to um, uh, some kind of team sport where you can uh, manipulate trash talking to the opponent or within the team and see if the same thing holds. Um, and, and so the information, I, I think we're on the same page that, that. So what's the thing that we learned from the cooperative competitive thing? 
that we needed the experiment to generate this? Like, why couldn't we just start out with the real world if that's what we wanted to do? Because the real world is is messy in a lot of ways, right? So, so while you claim to know exactly what would happen under this task, like they don't claim to know that. And so what they found is that uh, in a co- cooperative uh, task that it decreases motivation. Right? Trash talking decreases in a cooperative task. Yeah. Like, yeah. Well, wouldn't wouldn't you think that that was true already? Per- like, is perhaps, but 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 it could be that that it came out that it actually motivates people, right? In which case, you could have the interesting discussion about well, I, like let's now go to the real world and see, right? There is something about creating a microcosm of the world in a lab like the lab isn't a complete simulation in which there are no you know which are not using humans right these are still human beings there's still people who think they're playing a game there's still stakes involved there's still a manipulation that they believe just to call it artificial is no more artificial than a football game right you make it sound like it's exploratory what they're doing but it wasn't right they had hypotheses that they designed their experiments to test and to come out in a certain way. Um, so, they, so you're saying that they stacked the deck to find what they wanted. No, find. because that's that would be giving it too much credit. Like, because I think that How I mean, that I think credit? I think that's probably that might be true, or it might not. I don't know. For all I know, they pre-registered this. I would be surprised. But but the way you're describing the approach to experiments in general is we're just going to we're going to run some experiments involving trash talking see what happens and then we'll uh test it out in the real world based on some interesting things that we might find but you know that that's not how it works right well let me ask you this tamler if that's how they had structured the 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 studies and they had done these exact studies would that all of a sudden make it a valuable contribution i don't think so because i think that so then the information that. that you can get from that is something that you can just get from talking to like so it has just from you and i what... talking to each other about what we would expect from trash talking and okay. then just going directly to the real world with that but so so then it has nothing to do with what you just said right like it has nothing to do with whether they hypothesized it right if you if you don't think that it would be interesting even if it were exploratory then then it's a red herring. And I, f- I find that a lot of the criticisms that you level are red herrings for what is just deeply a suspicion about, just, uh, about whether or not we can learn regularities about the human mind through experiments. I mean, you're right that that's not, I don't think, the deepest problem. It doesn't mean that it's not a problem. It means that even if, even if this deeper problem wasn't a problem, then there's this more superficial problem. But... Um, but yes, I, I'm happy to admit that that's a red herring in this context, given that we are talking about the deeper problem. I agree. Right. So, with that. so I think that at the heart of the 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 problem um, is whether or not let's take methodology, just throw it to the wind, or let's say that we have actually, you know, open science has made this a, a fucking panacea of proper scientific practices and now we all pre-register now we you know do do everything like dot our i's and cross our t's to make sure that um we have uh valid and reliable measures and we come up with great manipulations that seem to the expert to the participant as if they were in real life i still think you wouldn't be too uh, 
bullish about doing experiments because I think that at the heart of your skepticism is whether or not this divide and conquer method of putting people in situations and seeing what they do is actually yielding uh, regularities that can lead us to laws of human behavior in the same way that, let's say, physics is. Because physics, you could say, has all of the same problems with um, predicting the real world, right? That's there, There's a reason that physicists and engineers are completely different people. A physicist can tell you under super controlled conditions, um, you know, at what rate will this object fall to the ground? And they can tell you exactly how, what that rate would be. In the real world, it's sloppy, right? There's wind, there's, there's people, there's all kinds of things that, that, that matter. The physicist is still finding underlying regularities to the physical world. Yes. The engineers know that it's sloppy and they can't rely on those things to actually predict because when you're building a bridge, there are a, a thousand things that influence uh, whether or not that bridge is going to stand. And they often mock like the arrogance of physicists for thinking that they can, um, w- with some equations, tell them whether or not this bridge will stand. Right. Um, but and I think the reason I'm getting to this is this is also my deep worry. That. Human beings are so complicated that the methods of divide and conquer science that have worked in the other hard sciences will actually never work in the social sciences. That is, the regularities that we find, the best we can hope for is predicting whether or not Patriots kickers at the, you know, in the beginning of this decade under these wind conditions with a shit talker um, in the fourth quarter will succeed that's what we've learned is that we haven't learned anything about trash talking or we haven't learned anything about wind conditions we haven't learned anything about right. difficulty we've learned that in confluence it seems to be that all of these things uh, when we measure the very thing we're interested in that seems to make a difference but what we can't do is infer natural laws from right. those findings is that is that fair? Is that a fair way to state your criticism? Yes. The only thing I would say is I think that's the worry. I think it's a worry that, like you just said, you've you you have as Absolutely. well and you have expressed on this podcast earlier. Yeah. And certainly certainly I have too. I don't want to rule out that an experiment could ever tell us something more general. Um and, or even that there are experiments that have told us stuff that is more general and more interesting than just what the experiment itself shows. Um, But I think the worry is that when you are studying something as complicated as what are the effects of trash talking, that the the methodology, like however well you refine it, pre-registering, no p-hacking, none of that, you still are not going to be able to find anything that's close to a general law or even a law that is, you know, confined to specific, to fairly specific contexts that go beyond the actual thing that you studied. So, so that is a worry for sure. Right. So Um, I think that like one, one way to protect against this is to just, uh, infer a generalization from one experiment and then go and test it in as many contexts as possible. And if what you find is that this keeps showing up as an important predictor in all of the contexts that you've tested in, 
then maybe you have something like a generality, right? But that's something that is always going to be an open question so long as there are uh, novel contexts and different people to be tested, right? There's no, there. it's not a closed system where you can say, like we have studied the ball dropping, the bowling ball right. and the feather in the vacuum, right? We, we don't have that about human beings. We have that about, about the physical world. But what I... Well, then I'm not sure is whether or not, so I think I'm more optimistic about the body of work that experiments, you know, the, the accretion of studies might be able to tell us something interesting, because I think that any one study has the possibility of telling us in that context, this is working. If we can find regularities across all the experiments with no p-hacking, with no, you know, publication bias, with no, like, you know, something like message framing. Um, and loss aversion or whatever, right? If we can keep finding that across contexts, then we might at least be able to make a tentative claim about uh, a regularity in the, the way the human mind processes something. Because I don't think it's, in principle, an intractable problem, right? The, the mind is a physical system. Right. Some, but but somehow, it might be intractable for certain kinds of phenomenon once they reach a threshold of complexity, Right, like the weather, uh, the weather being the classic yeah. example. The weather being a classic example, and then you would think that the human mind can, uh, the weather is nothing compared to the way not just the human mind, but the human interaction, social interaction in a contemporary world of all these different cultures and all these different societies and all these diverse ways in which they they can clash and they appear and all the ways in which the physical world imposes on that. So, yeah, the other thing I guess that isn't clear to me when I read these, and this is why I think I took a, a I had a more negative take on this experiment and, and experiments like it. It doesn't even seem like it acknowledges that there is a problem. And, and, and not only that, it's not clear to me how we would even know whether this generalizes beyond the very specific context that we don't give a shit about. Like, no, I, I don't know to the, it doesn't seem like yeah. that bridge that you're talking about of then taking this and applying it to the real world, that anybody knows how, how we would do that and how we would be able to then judge whether this actually did generalize beyond what we thought it might. Um, that's the work that it doesn't seem like is often done. It seems like it's more promissory notes and more just, well, that's that's a job for down the line. Right now we're just doing this. And yeah. it seems like the very thing that would make this worthwhile is the thing that isn't getting done. Yeah, so, so I mean, I am inclined to agree that, that I like the, the, the way you said it, the promissory notes. Social psychology traditionally is a bunch of promissory notes. Um, now, is there a way to get to the generalizability? And you say, like, you can't even see how you would get to that. I can. I mean, I can see that that you might take the the uh, conceptual distinctions that are made here that are applied to an experimental context and just say, look, like I can get let's get a bunch of people to to tell us in their what their sense of competitive versus cooperative is or or trash talking versus neutral talking and then you actually go about testing this so um and this this is why i think the appeal of descriptive research in principle is there for both of us because very it's much easier 
to have somebody like a journalist or right so like somebody write up something really interesting about the way that humans work in a particular context and that might be true and to get to that truth through experimentations would be extraordinarily costly in terms of time and money yeah right um but what i the reason that i keep hoping that just we just get better at experimentation is it's hard to distinguish the truth of descriptive claims yeah like just saying it sounds right isn't enough but i'm i'm left at a loss is if if it's not enough to distinguish the truth value of a descriptive claim as rich as that 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 claim might be are experiments in the way that we're doing it the way to get there well if they are I agree with you. We need a gajillion of them. So I, I want to hold on to the possibility that we can get to some regularities. But to be honest, I'm much more comfortable with saying, uh, let's do studies on the very things that we're interested in. Like if I'm interested in how poor kids perform in school, let me go study poor, poor kids performing in school. Right. Like the very poor kids and the very schools that I'm interested yes. in studying. Exactly. And that way I can yeah. use the scientific method. Um, like Wikipedia. To, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, because uh, there's a reason that when you look at the replicability of behavioral science that you get, as you would expect, that you get high predictability rates for lower level mechanisms. Right. So visual perception you know, you and I could replicate it right now, like most of the the well-known studies, like all it takes is a very, very small system that is causing vision relative to something like social behavior, right? And so you get like memory studies where those are robust, right? You and I could replicate those as well. Like the primacy recency effect, those are robust. Like that that doesn't rely on such a complex interaction of social and, and um, you know, mental features. The, the more you get to social, the worse and worse the numbers get, right? And I think that's just because the complexity is exponentially increasing. Right. And here's where I think we can agree. The way that we're going about it doesn't matter whether I'm a Bayesian or a frequentist, it doesn't matter if I have <laughs> right. like internally valid measures or or not. All that shit, all of that debate crucially hinges on whether or not it is it is possible to accrue knowledge that will yield general rules about human behavior. And we might not be there for a hundred or a thousand years. I don't know. Yeah. And it might also be so I think you put that really well. And I I, I would just add that when you say with the descriptive stuff, it's very hard to know if it's true because you lack those kind of experimental controls. But it just might be that we, we're not able to do it with yeah. the methods yeah. that we currently have and that refining the methods could be not the best use of our resources. It might be that we just have to do better at some of the stuff that won't that we'll never know for sure whether it's true or not it'll just better journalism but but we won't have that kind of scientific objective this is the the right theory it might just be that we have to go at it from a more humanistic perspective because that's just 
given the complexity of it, that is our, that's the best we can do. You know, sometimes science is the right way, scientific, the scientific method, to the extent that that's a thing, or, you know, experimental methods are uh, the right way of approaching something, and sometimes it isn't. And maybe it isn't for something like trash talking. This is the thing I'm on the, I don't know if I'm on the fence, because I'm, I'm leaning in a certain direction, but it might just be that this is not something we should even try to go about. Because in the descriptive paper, which we've barely talked about, it yeah. didn't do a really good job either. I think it could have right. done a better job, yeah. but it didn't yeah. do a good job of telling us something that we c- or didn't already know about trash talking. Uh, yeah. Well, and I, I think that we're at a disagreement about the didn't already know, because I think that, that, um, that we don't know, right? Like we don't, uh, like I don't with any confidence know whether trash talking ought to work in um, team sports uh, versus individual sports. I, I don't have a confidence. I can make a guess, right? But how do I evaluate whether that guess is right or wrong? Like it, to me. But we already know that that sometimes it'll be one way and sometimes it'll be another way, right? Yeah, but but what are those sometimes? But right? but like, but you don't think these papers tell us what the sometimes are? They tell us in this specific sometimes, right? This is information, right? It's not that it's not information. It's that it's not information that might reliably predict whether or not tennis versus uh, soccer is going to yield something. But I, I, as much as I like the humanistic approach, because I think that it is a rich source of understanding of the human world, like if I'm going to put, you know, it's where the rubber meets the road. Like, am I going to bank on the... Uh, vague intuitions if i really really want to know um something i mean you might be saying something else you might be saying that trash talking uh is too broad a concept to tackle but but if it's not if if suppose we understand trash talking as being whenever somebody you know does these negative things in a competitive i i still think that that the the optimism of thinking that a humanistic approach can yield truth is is problematic so i'd, I'd rather i, I agree least, it can yield yeah. insight but i don't think it can yield truth in the way that maybe some physical theories but but maybe nothing can is the is the point yeah maybe and the I, best I, we can do is insight it, well why what does insight mean if it's not you know it's it's i'm not sure where that gets us because I, I think, suppose that I had a, a broad understanding of how sports works. You know, I've spent 40 years in, in the world of sports and I have some uh, intuition about um, whatever trash talking um, and whether I should dissuade my players from doing it or whether I should encourage them from to, to do it. I think there you can just, you can at least really say that there is an answer to this. Um, the answer might be so context dependent as to only matter to you, like in your whether or not I give advice to my team. But there's an answer. And that answer yeah. can, at least in a very, very specified context, you could test whether or not the broad intuition of a humanist would stand in that context. And if you show that it doesn't, then, then there's, there's an incompleteness to the, to the humanistic approach, right? Yeah, I'm not doubting that there's an incompleteness. I'm saying that it might be that if you want to find that answer, it might be that 
the journalistic approach will give you a better way of uh, predicting the answer than the scientific approach, just because of the nature of the question. So it could be that human beings being what they are, our methods and limitations being what they are, that this necessarily in principally in principle more subjective way of approaching the problem is actually going to give you more insight more a bigger portion of the truth than the other way even though the other way might give you more of the illusion of the truth i i i think that the illusion of truth is more dangerous in the other way. So like if we circumscribed all of our claims about experiments and limited to the very context that we are measuring it, I think we are with, we can with more confidence say that we've discovered something than the, because I'm not sure when you say that it can yield insight, like how we would, how we know, like how do you You've never read like a piece of like a, like an essay or a book that gave you insight, like an ethnography that gave you insight about. Well, it strikes me as true. But I don't like. How would I know? Like, yeah, I, I, I but how would I mean, you know if the experiment, like, well, I can test it, right? So if I think that, like, uh, if I have some broad view of um, how penalty kick goalies are likely to act, um, I could, you know, there could be a journalist who says, you know, uh, there is this funny phenomenon that if you just kick straight in the middle, like the goalies will won't expect that, and um, you know, perhaps that strikes me as true, but there's an answer to that. But that's a that's right? a totally different. That's a very that is like the Wikipedia thing, like the you know, like the baseball shifts. That's something that is amenable to empirical testing. And there but are what things is a true that, insight. What is a true insight that's not about, amenable to empirical testing, even if that empirical testing is so complex as to we don't have the methods yet? I, I think maybe trash, like the effects of trash talking might be that. I, I'm not, again, I'm not fully convinced of this, but that might but so, be of a, a phenomenon complex enough that the methods of experimental testing will be a waste of time compared to just reading these great books about trash talking and all these ex- historical examples and and just trying to get a sense from these histories about whether it is uh, it's something that's advisable for your team or not. That the that that just the clumsy kind of experiments that we're going to do are going to be more distorting than they are illuminating. Whereas these things, imperfect, necessarily imperfect as they are, they will they they they'll give us more. I mean, I feel well, like I this. Think that like, yeah. If, if you make if you make very vague generalizations from from you know your lifetime of experience with trash talking you're you're still left with not being able to predict whether or not in any given in any given game a trash talking will will have an influence right like i i just don't trust that the that that right especially given the the amount of conflicting insightful things that people have written about the various complex phenomena that we're interested in Without a way to to test whether or not that is a true claim that I can use, right? That I can actually actually, you know, find a way to apply that insight. Then it's not to me. It's not insight. You okay, know, me, I mean, then it's, then it's just, not. But yeah. it's but neither is a imaginary experiment that you're going to run. No, but a Wikipedia style experiment is right. So I have more confidence in the very local experiment. 
than I do in the journalistic broad intuition. Fine. It, to the extent that you can do the very local experiment. So if you want to narrow down the problem enough so that you can uh, do an experiment, then by all means, you know, I think that's a great idea. All I'm saying is that when you're trying to to go beyond that, then and and you don't have, you know, like. All right, I, we have to stop because we've been doing this forever, <laughs> like literally forever. I am getting yelled at uh, by my family. But, yeah. uh, but like parenting, there is this question when you have a kid of, all right, what should I, what should I read? Should I read yeah. uh, a bunch of experiments about parenting that will let me know the best ways to raise your kid or answer questions that you have about what I should do and what I shouldn't do, or should I read these this other style of parenting book? It's not obvious to me that I should go to the experimental literature rather than get a bunch of perspectives on parenting from from people who have written good personal books about it. It's not obvious to me that I will learn more useful information from the experimental books than I would learn from the more uh, like subjective I, humanistic style of parenting book. I mean, I, I don't I know if you'll learn that much from either of them. Yeah, but, no, no, I, yeah. I, I agree. And I think that the, the disagreement, though, is only in principle whether yeah. or not there can be like that. I, I want to to still stick to the, the thought that that with a sufficiently complex uh, set of experiments, we would do better. I mean, there are things that are actually like, you know, like um, letting your baby cry <laughs> that that reliably stop crying behavior. Like we we do know that, but but they're few and far between. Like I I, I grant that, right? It's yeah. like in the existing distinguishing between true and false experimental claims at this point is is as difficult as distinguishing between true and false, say journalistic claims. Right, and the journalistic claims at least are having a broader, you know, not journalistic specifically, but, but the humanistic claims at least have a broader, more interesting, uh, approach. And, and there is wisdom, right? I, I don't, I agree there. There is wisdom that is non-empirical. Um, but, and but, then yeah. if you want to narrow down the problem, like, yes, how do I stop my baby from crying? Like what, how many hours should you go before feeding or something like yeah, that? Yeah. Then if you can sufficiently narrow it down to where there is re reliable experimental, then you should do that too. Right. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to decide how much my uh, baby should sleep by going to uh, uh, ask undergraduates what they think. <laughs> Yeah. on a seven point scale <laughs> and then i'll publish it how much your baby should sleep uh all right that was all good right. yes uh even though we had an argument but i don't think we hate each other no 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 i, I loved that argument yeah good <laughs> all right join us next time on very bad with Brain? You're a
just a very bad wizard.